Justin Bariso, in an article uh, in Inc., cited an 80-year Harvard study that says this one thing will make you help happier and healthier. It's the most comprehensive study of well-being in history. It started in the Great Depression, and most of the people, of course, who participated early in that study have passed on, but they, they even started studying their children. And uh, they've conducted hundreds of in-person interviews, questionnaires, and even brain scans, and the result is an abundance of data on physical, mental, and emotional health. And, and Robert Waldinger is the psychiatrist directing this study at the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And here's what Robert Waldinger had to say about the importance of human relationships. We'll see if we can get the quote up on the screen here. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. When we were get, gathered together, everything we knew about these participants at age 50, it wasn't their middle-aged cholesterol levels that predicted how they were going to grow old. Uh, in his now famous TED Talk, What Makes a Good Life? Lessons from the Longest Study in Happiness, he said it was how satisfied they were in their relationships. The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. Good relationships don't just protect our bodies, they protect our brains. The most comprehensive study of well-being ever conducted uh, at Harvard. So reconnect, this series is about learning new skills to strengthen those relationships, to renew, repair strained relationships where possible and where not possible to be able to set boundaries so that we can live well. And here's where we're headed every week. Today we're talking about conflict resolution. Next week we'll talk about communication, how to, how to listen how to express how we feel in a way that's, that's, uh, that's helpful, in a way that doesn't further harm and strain the relationship. And, and then August 7th, connection, how to live with vulnerability and connect on a deeper emotional level with other people to know how we feel and to be able to sense how they feel and to be able to connect with each other on a deeper emotional level. And then August 14th, compassion, that everyone you meet has a unique story. And in the divisive and hateful times, that we live in. Our society needs to be reminded of compassion. And so today we're starting with conflict uh, resolution. And I just need to say, I'm a fellow journeyer on this path. I'm not an expert. My wife is in the service today. I can't even pretend to be an expert today. And so I'm going to share information that has helped me, that is helping me currently, because I'm a work in progress, and the wisdom of others to talk about how to resolve conflict in a way that leads to wellness and renewed relationships. We're going to look at what scripture says about resolving conflict in the most important uh, uh, relationships of our lives. Now, let's start by saying churches have often not done a good job of addressing 
the complex relational issues that human beings face. Does anybody want to say an amen to that? That churches have often had a hard time with the messiness and the complexity of human relationships. So I want to give a few disclaimers. First of all, that human, re- human relationships are messy and complex. And I'm not going to give simplistic answers during this series. You're not going to hear you know, three easy steps to solving every problem you've ever had in your life. And I'm, I'm not going to make it sound like resolving marital conflict, for example, is just easy. And if you just grow up, everything will be okay. You know, we're not going to give simplistic answers. Secondly, a sermon is a broadcast. And this is really important. I don't know your unique story and, and how you hear everything I say in the sermon. A sermon is a wide net. It's a broadcast. And so there may be things I say that don't really apply to you. There may be things I say that really apply to you. And so it just takes some discernment from your part as a listener. I'm not God. And so a sermon is a broadcast, and that leads into the third disclaimer, that if something I say in my sermon might nudge you towards seeing a counselor who could hear your unique story, then I would consider that a win. Because a counselor can actually hear what you're going through and and give you empathy and, and let you talk out what's happening in your unique story in a way that a sermon can't. So does that sound fair? All right, that's important to say. So... Um, One of the things that I've learned about us as a congregation is we've essentially relaunched over the past year. By the way, last week was one year since we started back in person after the COVID lockdown. So we've been doing this for a year. And one of the things I've learned about the congregation is, generally speaking, a lot of us struggle with strained relationships or even estrangement. Often it is over political disagreements between us and other family members. Sometimes it's over sexuality. You came out and you had a family member or members who don't approve of you. And there's a strained relationship there. Or you've been on a theological journey that other people around you have not been on. And that strains relationships or even creates estrangement. So it's a a theme in this congregation. And if you're new here, if you're new and you feel that way, there's a possibility that as you get more plugged into groups here and ministry teams, you get to meet people and hang out with people. You can form new friendships, almost new family relationships, a church family that you're missing in your life right now because a lot of people are going through that right now. So I just think that's important to acknowledge. That's where a lot of us are. Now, of course, the way many of us deal with conflict is based on what we saw our parents do. So our family of origin has a great deal of influence, probably more than we realize, about how we view conflict and the assumptions we hold, the unexamined assumptions we're not even aware of until we bump up against somebody else in a conflict and we figure out, wait, they have a different view of conflict than I do. And so the way that you grow up can affect the way you deal with conflict. Or maybe you came to believe at some point that good relationships don't go through conflict. If people really care about each other and, and and they love each other, whether it's a romantic relationship or friendships, or if it's just like a cordial work relationship or church relationship, they figure, you know, people who really care, they don't have conflicts. If people really love each other enough, they won't argue. But here's a starting point for us today. All relationships must go through conflict. Now, you might read that and you think, wait a second, like must? Couldn't you use the word can? Like all relationships can, or even all relationships will go through conflict. Why the word must, all relationships must 
go through conflict. Well, why, why is that? Well, Gary Lewandowski wrote an article in Psychology Today uh, called, For Relationship Success, Argue More, Not Less. The counterintuitive reasons why you and your partner need to fight more. How about that for a title? He writes, partners argue. And really, why wouldn't they? In any union between two independent and equal adults who share power and feel secure, surely they will have differences of opinion. Simply, you are not going to agree on everything with another human being on this planet. And you probably won't even agree with yourself sometimes because we don't have life figured out and nobody's perfect. So there is absolutely no way whatsoever that in any relationship you will not experience conflict. In order to have a real authentic relationship where you can be yourself and the other person can be themselves, you must go through conflict. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go looking for it. You don't have to try to create conflict. It's going to happen. It's, it's just a reality of, of two or more human beings just trying to get along with each other. There is going to be conflict. So all relationships must go through conflict. And it's really the test of the, of the strength of any relationship, isn't it? If you meet somebody, it could, it could be a coworker, and you think you get along well, everything's fine, and then there's a, a conflict of some kind. It could even be a minor disagreement, and then you both decide to never talk to each other again. How real was that? working relationship. Or let's say you uh, have a dating relationship and, and the person seems fine, but then there's just a little bit of an argument about something early on and you think, well, we argued about that. We're just going to scrap it. And you both walk away. Well, how authentic was that relationship? It's the test of any relationship, whether it's worth having, is if it can make it through Conflict, because what happens, of course, is when we, we have a relationship with somebody, what, no matter what kind of relationship it is, and we experience a conflict, we have a decision to make. Is this person worth it? Is this person, my relationship with this person, worth working through the conflict or not? And if we decide to work through the conflict, that says to each other, you're worth it to me. Whether it's a, a romantic relationship or, or just, you know, buddies, friends, hanging out. Going through a conflict, working it out, says, you're worth it to me. And so all relationships must go through conflict. Now, when it comes to relation, uh, you know, romantic relationships specifically, a lot of us, we get our ideas from movies, fairy tale movies. We see growing up like Cinderella and, and, and stories about couples who have vastly different backgrounds, but they have this whirlwind romance, and then they ride off into the sunset and they live happily ever after. And we just assume that that's what romantic relationships will look like. And I thought to myself, I wish there were more Disney movies about what happens to Cinderella and Prince Charming after the wedding. Don't you? Wouldn't it be a brilliant story to call it like happily ever after and it's a totally dysfunctional marriage? Wouldn't that be? And to see how they work out, like, like real people, how they would work. I think that would sell. You know, I should pitch that to Disney. Yeah, but I think it would, I think it would work. And, and so I went online actually looking for any ideas. Have there, have there been movies made like this? What could that be like? And I found this forum that was pretty entertaining where people were suggesting the plot. If there was a movie based on Cinderella and Prince Charming after they get married. And so I wanted to share a couple of these with you. These are, these are pretty good. So one, one person wrote, it starts with Cinderella helping the maids with their work in the castle. 
She's very kind-hearted and sympathetic towards them, and Prince Charming's wheels get to spinning, and he sees an excellent opportunity to cut staff and save some money. Before you know it, Cinderella is the only maid keeping up the castle. She works day and night. Prince Charming promises it's only temporary, and he pretends to sympathize. Next thing you know, Baby Charming comes along. I love this. And this is when things really take a turn. She has a conversation with the prince. Honey, I'm really quite exhausted. How much longer will this go on? If you can't afford maids, perhaps you could help me take care of the castle a little bit. Prince Charming calls her an ungrateful peasant. Ouch, low blow. She had never seen this side of the prince. He always seemed so well charming. After months of this continued uncharming behavior, Cinderella and Baby Charming find a nice little cottage in the woods not far from the Seven Dwarves. They live the rest of their days in peace, perhaps a little lonely and a little jaded, but no longer subjected to Prince Charming's narcissistic abuse. How's that for a, a different alternative happily ever after? Or he, here are some shorter ones. It turns out that Prince Charming is deathly afraid of mice and disgusted by Cinderella's need to keep them around her. Anybody seen the movie? Maybe you understand. He's jealous of the attention she lavishes on mice and by birds constantly leaving pieces of fabric around the castle. After many arguments, finding mouse droppings on his charming, charming royal coat uh, is the last straw for him. One more. After a year of marriage, Prince Charming storms into Cinderella's chamber and says, Cindy, baby, please tell me you did not buy another pair of glass slippers. You can only wear one pair at a time. He confesses he's not as rich as he let on, and he even had to borrow his friend's chariot for them to ride off after the wedding. Maybe if you didn't keep losing glass slippers, I wouldn't be going bankrupt, he rages. So how's that for a little bit more real version of how relationships can go, what happily ever after might actually look like? So some of us read fairy tale, fairy tale stories, and we assume we'll never argue. And then in any relationship that if people get along, they'll never have an argument. It's a myth. I saw a, a meme recently I like about technology. It's great when it works. It's about a printer. I think I have it here. It says, the tale of the working printer, the printer that simply worked, and other fairy tales. So a conflict-free relationship is a fairy tale. All relationships must go through conflict. So Regardless if it's a romantic relationship or with family members, extended family, coworkers, church friends, people at school, here is what conflict resolution is not. Conflict resolution is not avoidance and it's not appeasement. Avoiding is denial, just acting like there isn't a conflict and sweeping things under the rug. While relationships are supposed to go well and I don't want to have to deal with this conflict so I'm just going to sweep it under the rug and pretend like it's not happening and just put it off into the future. Conflict resolution is not avoidance and it's not appeasement. What's appeasing mean? When you just give somebody what they want and you think that'll make the conflict go away. So just say yes and smile and then it'll stop and it'll all get better. Well, how does that work in the long term? That means one person is a doormat, the other person is, is controlling, they get what they want. So conflict resolution is not avoidance and it's not appeasement. Now, why do we try that? Why do we try to avoid? Why do we try to, uh, try to appease somebody else in a conflict? It's one word. Can you guess what it, it starts with an F. Make sure you say the right word. It's one word. Fear. And what do we fear? We fear rejection. If I'm real with this person, if I express myself and how I really feel about this conflict, maybe they'll reject me. 
Maybe our relationship will end. And I just don't feel like I could go through that. So I'm just going to avoid or I'm going to appease. Or we're afraid that, you know, we're afraid we might be harmed. We're afraid that we might get into a custody battle. I mean, these things get very serious. And so fear keeps us from really dealing with conflict. And then we avoid and appease to try to sidestep the conflict. But it never, it never works. Of course, when you avoid or you appease, it just puts off the conflict until later. And it just grows and grows and grows and festers and it gets worse and worse and worse. Imagine going to the doctor and they, they conduct a blood test and they find a tumor. And you just say, well, I'm just going to avoid this. What happens? Does it go away? We wish. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And the same thing with trying to avoid a conflict or appease somebody else in conflict. So what does real conflict resolution look like? The author Max Lucado um, wrote in a book called When God Whispers Your Name, conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. Isn't that good? Conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen. All relationships must go through conflict, but combat is optional. And, and we want to follow Jesus here. We want to, to model our lives after the example of Jesus, as high of a goal as that is, but that's what we're interested in doing. And so what does Jesus say about conflict resolutions? We want to look at a couple of scriptures and then break this down. What could this look like in our lives in a real practical way this morning? So first of all, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. So people who, who want to make peace and resolve conflict. Now, once again, some people read peacemaker and they think that means avoiding. No. Or they think it means appeasing. No. That's not what conflict resolution is. People who really resolve the conflict and really work for peace, they will be called children of God. Just a few verses down, later in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders, murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, some translations add without cause, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which literally means empty-headed. It's calling somebody an idiot. They're answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Just completely um, dehumanizing somebody. And hell there is the word Gehenna. There are questions about that. We've given sermons about that. But Jesus is talking about name-calling and dehumanizing people. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. So according to Jesus, when is the right time to resolve conflict? Now. Right now. Immediately. The right time to resolve conflict is right now. So we don't name call. We don't dehumanize people. And then Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so in his time, people would go to the temple, they would take a sacrificial gift. And, and Jesus says, if you're, if you're going to worship God, you're going to carry out a religious practice, which you know, most people would think is a good thing. And you remember that somebody has something against you. It's not even that you have something against somebody else. Somebody has something against you. Jesus says, leave your gift. Just You're in church, and, and, and you, you remember that somebody has something against you, just get up and leave. 
and go resolve that conflict. It, it might be hyperbole, maybe not. Jesus is making the point, resolve it now. Quickly, he says in verse 25, settle matters quickly. Resolve it as quickly as you can. Why? Because it only festers and grows if it's not resolved. And, and later in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, there's a quote of Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, and the author says this, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, not avoiding, not appeasing, speaking truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down on you while you are angry, and, and do not give the devil a foothold. So you hear marriage advice all the time, don't go to bed angry. Now I, I wish that I've always kept to that, and, and we all do. But it means take care of the conflict now. Resolve the conflict now, as soon as possible. And another thing, when Jesus talks about leaving your gift and going and being reconciled, tells us that reconciliation is even more important than religious behavior. Jesus says, leave your gift. There's something even hypocritical. You can, you can you know, kind of read between the lines here about somebody who goes and they worship and they, they go through all the, the motions of worship, but, but, but there's some kind of unreconciled conflict that could be reconciled. Remember, not all conflicts can. There's more to the sermon. Wait a few minutes. But when conflict can be reconciled, and we just don't, and we go through the motions of worshiping God and we're a good Christian and all this, there's something hypocritical about that. That reconciliation is more important than religious behavior. Why is that? Well, we quote this all the time because it's the main thing. Jesus said it's the main thing. When somebody asks Jesus, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? What are the greatest commandments? What does God want from us? And Jesus says what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus answers with kind of two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And, but it's, he said the second is like it, so it kind of means linked to it. Why? I thought we were asking for one commandment. Why did you give us two? Love God and then love your neighbor. Well, how do you love God? What do you get God for Christmas? God doesn't need anything. How do you love God? You love God by loving your neighbor, the people around us. And who is your neighbor? Well, it's everybody. And so somehow the way I love God, my relationship as a Christian, my relationship as a follower of Jesus is inextricably linked to how I love other people. And if I have unreconciled conflict that can be reconciled and I just don't care to do it or I'm avoiding it or I'm just trying to appease the person because I'm afraid, there's something about that that Jesus says, no, reconciling is more important than acting religious. Your relationships are more important than your religious practices. Now, we need to say it. You can't reconcile with somebody who's abusing you. You can't reconcile with somebody who's lying to you. You can't reconcile with somebody who has abandoned you. So you, you can't reconcile with everybody. But when it's possible to reconcile, and we don't, there's something about that that's, that's hypocritical. Jesus says re resolving conflict in relationships is even more important than religious practices. So my wife Hannah and I are, are celebrating our 14th anniversary this Tuesday. And so, thank you. You know it's been a while when people applaud. So, thank you for that. And we've packed a lot of life into 14 years. 
We got married. We both immediately started master's programs. Don't ever do that. We, the ink was barely dry on our marriage license, and we started master's degree programs. We started two churches from scratch. And so our, our marriage has generally taken place in a pressure cooker with stress around us all the time, high stakes, you know, everybody in our social circles watching what we're doing, whether it will be successful or not. And, and, and so we faced a lot of, of stress in our marriage. We have gone to marital counseling twice during our marriage, sessions of marital counseling twice during our marriage. And one of the ways of resolving conflict that we've learned about as we think about how to practically live this out is based in human needs theory. If you're a note taker, you could jot this down. Human needs theory. It was originally proposed by a conflict scholar named John Burton in a book in 1979, and he, ad- he addressed conflict in government and war. But then it's become influential in all kinds of uh, social sciences and, and human relationships. And human needs theory, uh, it sounds you know, uh, complex, but it can be broken down into some simple steps. And some of these are just aha moments. They were for us, and again, we're works in progress, as we all are, but it could be that this unlocks a door in how you uh, resolve conflict in the most important relationships in your life. So first of all, human needs theory begins with this. Conflict begins with an unmet need. Now, there are other theories. There, you, people can argue, but human needs theory says conflict begins with an unmet need. One of the parties in the relationship has a need that is unmet. And they would like the other party to meet that need. The other party is not currently meeting that need. They may or may not want to. They may, they may not know about the need. Maybe they want to, but they don't know about it. Or maybe there's a miscommunication about the need. Or maybe the person doesn't want to meet the need. But all conflict begins with an unmet need. And then secondly, when we have an unmet need, we have a choice regarding the way we express ourselves about that unmet need. So when we express that unmet need, we could express it with vulnerability and honesty and transparency and just vulnerably share that we have that need. How many of us do that? Let's be honest. Usually, we jump to attacking, stonewalling, gossiping, building alliances. We retreat in fear or we blame the other person for not meeting our need that they may even not even know we have. So usually we jump that first step of expressing the actual need we have and we just jump to conflict management. Blaming the other person, accusing, getting angry, telling other people, etc. But we have a choice in how we express that unmet need. And so it might, it might look like this. So a couple of examples. Let's say you have two significant others. And one works a lot at night. And that person says, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going back to the office to get some work done. I'll be home later tonight. And then the other partner who's left at home says, what? You're going out again? You worked late three nights uh, this week. I thought we were going to watch a show together tonight. So the person who's going out to work late again has a choice in how they respond. They they could think either my partner is, is a possessive, controlling jerk, 
Or they can see the need behind this statement. Now, the person who said, what, you're going out again? They had a choice in how they expressed a need. And they, they chose kind of blaming, kind of, you know, you should stay home with me. And so both of them have a choice in how they communicate. But the key is here to look for what is the unmet need that is being expressed. So for the partner who's at home and says, what, you're going out again? It's the third time this week. We're going to watch a show together. What's the unmet need that partner is expressing? Isn't it something like, I love you and I want to spend time with you? Correct? Do you see how this works? Now, is that a bad thing or a good thing? That's a really good thing. If somebody's unmet need is, I love you and I want to spend time with you. That's a really good thing. But that's not what they said. They said, what? You're going out again? And so they had a choice in how they expressed their unmet need. They, said, they could have said, you know what? Before you go out again, I just want you to know I love you. And we don't get to spend a whole lot of time together. And I was really looking forward to it tonight. I love you and I want to spend time with you. That's a way different way of communicating an unmet need, isn't it? And then the partner who was going out to work late again, uh, again that week, they have a choice. When they hear their partner kind of blame, what, you're going out again? You've been out three nights this week. They can come back and say, why are you so controlling? Why are you so possessive? I'm trying to, I'm trying to you know, be a breadwinner. And, or they can say, what's their unmet need? I'm really stressed out. I have more work than I can finish. And I'm, I'm doing this for our family. The key is, what is the unmet need? Every conflict begins with an unmet need. It is usually not expressed. Instead of vulnerably and transparently expressing that unmet need, we usually jump that and go to blaming, attacking, arguing, and then back and forth, and then the conflict grows and widens because we're not hearing each other. So what is the unmet Need example two, just it might be a work situation. So recently, I had a situation where in my day job I had a file that needed to be reassigned to a different department. I talked with my higher ups. I reassigned the the file. Now the person I reassigned it to, are they happy to get more work? No, they're not. And they're kind of gruff with me, kind of short. Now what's the need there? What's the need that they're expressing? My task is what need are they expressing? Well, what I know about that person's department is they're horribly overworked and super stressed out. And so I could say, hey, just do your job. Or I can hear the unmet need and think, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to clean this file up, put a nice pretty bow on it, make it as easy as possible for this person because I know they're stressed out. And then try to communicate that to them in a non-combative way. So why, why does seeing the need work? to resolve conflict. Well, when we see the actual unmet need that somebody is trying to express to us, we can now hear them, understand where they're coming from, and empathize with them and the need that they feel. Instead of getting into a blame game and a back and forth and attacking each other and then going and telling other people about it and it just gets worse and worse and worse, if we're able to see the unmet need the person is expressing, we're much more likely to look at that person with empathy and we can listen to them and understand them and it might actually be a great thing. The unmet need they're expressing is great towards us. I love you and I want to spend more time with you. 
And it could be if, if, if you have two people in any kind of relationship, but especially in a romantic relationship like this, where they're really hearing each other's needs, and you get past the blaming and the fighting, and one of them says, I love you and I want to spend time with you. And the other one says, I love you too, and I'm just overwhelmed and I'm trying to get my work done. And they come to some kind of an understanding and they can fall into each other's arms and reconnect and be closer than they've ever been before because they actually hurt each other's unmet needs. So in, the key is when you experience a conflict, you can ask, what is my unmet need that I want met? And then ask, what is the unmet need this other person once met? This is worth the price of admission right here. If, if you're a note taker, if you're dealing with conflict, I can't tell you when I first heard this what this did to me. And I'm far, from, I'm far from perfect, believe me. My wife's here and she could tell you all about it, I'm sure. I am far from perfect, but I, I learned a great deal when I heard that. That was revolutionary for me. That a conflict starts with an unmet need. And instead of getting into the back and forth and the arguing and the blaming and the attacking and the gossiping and so on, if I can hear what, it, what is their unmet need, what is my unmet need, a lot of times what it does is it actually pulls us closer together. Because a lot of times they need, they need love. They need my friendship. They, that's a good thing. And, and we want to provide that for each other and it pulls us together instead of pulling us apart. So instead of being something that needs to be avoided or you need just to appease somebody, now conflict is an opportunity to meet each other's needs. Think about that. How revolutionary is that? A way of looking at conflict. It's an opportunity to know what my friends, my partners, my coworkers, my church friends' needs are. And then I can think about how to meet their needs. And I can express my needs to them. And, 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 they, and we can work together. And that, that is the way of resolving conflict that pulls us together instead of pulling us apart. Conflict is an opportunity to meet each other's needs. How revolutionary is that? Amazing. Life-changing. That can save a marriage. That can save a church relationship. A lot of us, we come from, from difficult backgrounds into a church like this. I love this church. I think it's the best church in the world. It, it, but nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody here is. There's going to be conflict here. At the first sight of conflict, do we run? And we're like, oh, those church people. you know? Or do we see it as an opportunity to explore our own unmet needs, their unmet needs? We might discover we have the same needs, and oh my goodness, we're a gift to each other straight from God to help each other out. And instead of running away, we can grow closer together. Just amazing stuff. Finally, what happens when you can't resolve conflict with somebody? What happens when, when you, you, you can't have a, a happy ending? to the conflict and, and, and when the person is not able to or they're not willing to resolve conflict, then what do you do? Well, then it's time to set boundaries. Now, like we said in the beginning of the sermon, churches have traditionally done a horrible job of acknowledging the messiness of human relationships, especially when reconciliation is not a simple black and white, easy process. For example, how, how, how well have churches dealt with divorce? I mean, is there a grade lower than an F you could give 
for how well churches have dealt with divorce. There, there are times in a conflict at work, at home, at school, any other place, when loving the person doesn't mean having a relationship with the person. You can love somebody and not have a relationship with that person if, if you're just simply not able to or if they are not able to. Also in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So that can seem a little cryptic at first, but in Jesus' time, they didn't love dogs the way we do. And so calling somebody a dog or a pig was an insult. And, and so Jesus, is, it's pretty plain once you know that. Don't give something valuable to somebody who doesn't appreciate it. Don't throw pearls to swine. If so if, if you're trying to have a relationship with somebody and, and you can't, because they're mistreating you, they're abusing you, they are abandoning you, or the relationship is so toxic, they're attacking you. You can't have a relationship with somebody like that. And so there are people, there are women who come to, to churches all over the world and they hear the pastor talk about like, you know, goodness, we'll talk about like submission passages here in a couple of weeks and uh, in, in, in conflict. And, and there are women who think they have to stay in abusive relationships because of what they heard in church. If you're being abused, get out. Get out. That's the right answer. You can't have a relationship with somebody who is not able to have a healthy relationship. And so you don't give something valuable to somebody who is just going to trample on it and turn around and tear you to pieces. You can love people without having a relationship with them. And it's important to say the divorce rate in America is very high. I'm sure there are lots of marriages that could have been saved, but because of communication, because of not having conflict resolution skills, so on, there are marriages that end that don't need to. And at the same time, there, there are times when you're not able to have a relationship with somebody, or it could be a friendship or a relationship with coworkers or, or some people. There's a scripture that says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with Everybody, my friends in recovery call it cleaning your side of the street. That you've done everything you can to be a good person, to be a loving person, a compassionate person, to reconcile with somebody, but there are people you can't be reconciled with. And so for some people, you can love them without having a relationship with them. So quite a few of you have told me over the past couple of years, you've had to set boundaries with uh, some people in your family when it comes to talking about politics. There was somebody who told me, uh, I think last year, they had to have a, a conversation with, with the dad who's, you know, they live in a different town and they'll travel and they'll, they'll have dinner together and hang out. And, and she basically said, Dad, I need to have a dinner without hearing the name Donald Trump. Can we do that? And his answer was a little dicey. And you think about the pain that many of you have gone through. And we put that on the back burner because we're all busy. But you think about the strained relationships that so many of us have experienced over politics. There are times that boundaries need to be set 
Maybe we're not going to hang out as much. There are times. I've had conversations with people here at the well who, I mean, every time they meet with their family members, their family member has something negative to say about their sexuality. How many times are you going to do that? But before it takes a toll on your mental health, there are times when you have to set boundaries with people. When it comes to divorce, again, churches have traditionally done a horrible job. And so most people agree. There are, there are times when staying together is more harmful than a divorce. Divorce is always harmful. It's always painful. But there are times, and some of you may have a hard time even hearing this. There are times. I've been a pastor for 20 years. There are times when staying together is more harmful than a divorce. There are, of course, cases of abuse. That should be an easy one. Cases of infidelity, abandonment, negligence when the other person's essentially out. And it's been that way for a while, and it's, there doesn't seem to be a sign of recovering. The, the hardest one that churches I've found have a, have a hardest time with is, is when you have two people who have tried and tried and tried. And it's gone on for years. And they've gone to marital counseling many times. And, and they can be two decent people. It doesn't have to be abuse. And they, they come to a place where they, they basically say, let's stop torturing each other. And let's create happier environments for our kids. I understand that you know, there are strong feelings about these things, but you, you don't know. And I don't expect applause or any hands going up. But you never know how life-giving what I just said could be to somebody who has been alienated by church and they're in a horrible relationship and all they ever hear is fix it, fix it, fix it and it's simplistic and black and white and, and, and their kids are going through hell all the time. So there are times when you love somebody but you can't really have a relationship with him. Now, if you look back on your relationships, once again, a sermon is a broadcast, and I don't know your unique story, and, and you look back on your relationships, and there are times that you feel like a failure. Yeah, man, I just can't do this. I don't have what it takes. I want to share this with you. In 1977, in a book called Families Under Stress, Dr. William Brown wrote this. Failure is an event, never a person. Failure is an event, never a person. If you feel like you know, you've failed in relationships and resolving conflict, no matter what it is, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's coworkers, maybe it's church, maybe it's extended family, maybe it's kids, maybe it's with your parents. Failure is an event, never a person. You're not a failure, in other words. You're not a relational failure. You're not a hopeless case. You're not a lost cause. We can just start lying to ourselves and then we isolate and and alien other people out of fear, once again, fear of rejection, it's always fear. But failure is an event, never a person. So in any relationship, you, you learn what you can, you grow, you love, you listen, you empathize, you clean your side of the street, and you do everything you can to reconcile. And if you can't reconcile, then you set boundaries, and you can still love a person even if you can't have a relationship with them. So in closing today... I have a, a three-minute video I want to show you before we end the sermon, and it's a, it's a, it's a cool little commercial for a, a relationship counselor in Australia, 
And I found this online, and it's three minutes, it's a little cartoon, but it's this brilliant explanation of how to resolve conflict. And so let's watch this three-minute video. What is it about conflict that makes it so difficult to deal with and how come good people can turn into such monsters in the face of conflict? The most common way of dealing with conflict is to avoid it. Some people walk away, others get really upset, wind themselves up and attack, and others just get sick or go on stress leave. In fact, it's amazing what people will do in order to avoid conflict and the emotional stress that comes with it. There is a very clever saying that goes like this, denial is not a river in Egypt. Denial is, however, one of the most common problems when it comes to resolving conflict. When confronted with a tense or difficult conflict, too many people smooth it over, bury their head in the sand, and the conflict goes on for another one, two, or three weeks, months, or even years in some cases. I want to introduce you to a definition of conflict and then give you a pathway for the resolution of conflict. Before I do, I want to say this. For some people, even the word conflict means warfare, dead bodies and blood on the streets. And it's very common for women and men to see anything less than that as not being in conflict at all. So this is a definition that starts at a very low level because most conflict starts out as very small upsets and builds and grows into a full-scale battle. So here's the definition. Conflict exists when one person has a need of another and that need is not being met. Now, don't be fooled by the simplicity of this definition. The resolution of conflict starts from here and the first step is to express the need. The second step is to find out if the need can or cannot be met. If the need can be met, then we have resolution. If it's a no, then we negotiate to resolve the conflict or we go into the management of conflict. So here's the problem. Most people go straight from having an unmet need into the management of conflict, bypassing step one and step two because they are afraid and don't talk to the people who can do something about it. And that's not pretty. In fact, it gets quite ugly. So here's what the management of conflict looks like. Sulking, withdrawing, getting sick, the silent treatment, backstabbing, gossiping, shouting, blocking, being aggressive and getting angry. So the resolution of conflict starts with expressing your unmet need and then finding out if your unmet need can or cannot be met. If your conflict has escalated to the stage where it's too tough or sensitive or difficult to handle, then you really need to think seriously about involving a neutral third party to help you mediate the dispute, and we can help you out with that. For more information, please call me, Jeff Muir, on 1300-555-635 or download the Conflict Resolution Survival Guide for Business Leaders. We offer you a free confidential telephone consultation to help you work out what to do next. The cost of conflict is too high, so before it gets any worse... Call me now. Isn't that great? So if you're ever in Australia, give Jeff a call. Now, if you're not in Australia, I would be glad to refer you to a counselor. If you email me, info at wellchurch.org, you can friend request me on Facebook, send me a message. I would be glad to refer you to a counselor. So here's the action step from this week. In the conflict that you're currently experiencing, what need are you trying to express and what need is the other person trying to express? Maybe that's our action step this week. Whatever conflict you, you want to start with. We all probably have more than one in our lives. But what need are you trying to express? And what need is the other person trying 
to express. So all relationships must go through conflict. We can't avoid it. We can't appease other people. Conflict starts from an unmet need. And if we can express that, then we can understand each other's unmet needs. And often it will pull us together instead of pulling us apart. When that's not possible, we set boundaries. But no matter what, we love people. If we can have a great relationship, excellent. Sometimes you can love people and not have a relationship with them if those boundaries need to be set. But that looks like a Jesus way of resolving conflicts. I invite you to pray. God, thank you for the scriptures we read today. Thanks for the, thanks for the cute commercial video at the end that is life-giving. And, oh God, you know that the truth is that for many, for many of us, the heaviest weights we carry through life are unresolved conflicts with other people. And we ruminate over it. And we, instead of going to the person, we talk to other people. And we believe things about that person that isn't true. We, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but we think they have you know, dubious motives. <laughs> and, and God... Uh, a commitment to reconciliation where Jesus says right now is the time. Right now is the time to resolve the conflict. It means we want to take a different approach. And then loving our neighbor as ourself looks a lot like hearing what is that unmet need that that person's expressing to me. Maybe they're too afraid to actually vulnerably clearly express it. So they blame me, they accuse me, they get mad, yell at me. But what is the unmet need? And then I have a choice, of course. Am I going to yell back, blame, gossip, whatever? Or am I going to hear their unmet need and then am I going to express my unmet need? And we both hear each other's needs with clarity and with vulnerability and no longer attacking, but just honest vulnerable statements I need this from you and I need this from you and we might find out that man our relationship is closer than it's ever been because we realize how much we need each other and what could have been used to pull us apart has now been an opportunity to reconnect and grow closer than we've ever been before. And of course, God, you know there are times when that's not possible, when it's too toxic or when the other person is not interested in that. And we go through the painful process of setting boundaries, but we, we refuse to hate the person. We can love people, and love our neighbors, ourselves, without having a relationship with them. And of course, that creates needs and there are friends who can come alongside of us and be a family to us and be real friends to us, hopefully in this church. God, we pray this week as we take this action step that we would have real insights, real steps. This wouldn't just be a little, a little sermon that we forget about, but we really would think this week, okay, in that conflict, what need am I trying to express and what need is the other person trying to express? Really give it thought. Have a conversation about it. And we can reconnect and perhaps be closer together than we've ever been before. We thank you for this hope that you give us. In Jesus' name, everybody says.